Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Joanna Williams about her account of the life and political career of the 19th century British businessman and civic leader Abel Haywood, entitled Manchester's Radical Mayor, Abel Haywood, the Man Who Built the Town Hall. Joanna, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very good to uh, be here. Well, it's great to have you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I was born uh, very close to Manchester and was brought up by a father who was very, very proud of being a Mancunian. And uh, so I've always had a great interest in the city. Um, I loved history from quite an early age and I trained to be a history teacher for schools. But I also taught in the um, extramural department of the University of Manchester for quite a few years to adult classes. Uh, and eventually, when I did go and teach in a school, I was teaching from 11 to 18-year-old girls. And uh, in the sixth form, the top end of the school, um, I was teaching them about the 19th century and politics in the 19th century and the British Empire. And uh, I gained a huge enthusiasm for that topic through my discussions with the sixth formers and their enthusiasm inspired me. Um, so I've had a, a long career in teaching and um, I retired three years ago uh, and uh, decided that I would like to go back to what I'd originally done, which is research uh, and to write something. And so I uh, lit on this particular topic um, because I had the leisure to do it and also the interest in the city. It, why Abel Haywood in particular? Because it, it seems to be quite a shift in scale. Of, you know, you were talking about you were teaching empire, you were teaching uh, the nineteenth century, the period of British uh, power, and 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 you want to get to Manchester. But it, your book is specifically about this one very interesting individual. What made him stand out? Why were you drawn to him in particular? Well, I think. To some extent, when once I started looking, at, I decided that I would like to write a biography. I love to read biographies, so I picked that genre in particular. And I was reading about different people who were involved in the development of Manchester as an industrial city, the industrial city of the early 19th century. It was the um, uh, historian Asa Briggs called it the shock city of the Industrial Revolution. And when I read his life story, or little, a very sort of potted version, which is all there was, uh, I realised that he was, in a way, embodied in the life and the development of the city in his own life. Um, he lived from 1810 till 1893, so he spanned almost the whole of the 19th century in his life. And um, he was involved in the great movements of the day, the radical movements of the day. Um, and so, in a way, his life was a, like a microcosm of what was going on in Manchester, which was a very radical city. Uh, and the other thing that attracted me to him was that um, because he had chaired the committee that built the town hall um, for the council, which is a huge Gothic building in the centre of Manchester, um, still used today, although it's actually closed for a massive renovation at the moment. Um, but uh, he, he sort of oversaw the whole building. Um, 
that he, he was also very involved in this, um, what's become an icon of Manchester life. Um, Mancunians identified very strongly with this building. And whenever there's a major uh, issue, conference, uh, demonstration, the town hall always is, the, is there in the background. It's the, it's the iconic thing in Manchester. So the fact he was very, very closely tied up with its um, uh, inception and development and built, building um, made him also very attractive uh, to me. And I kind of liked him as a guy. He reminded a bit of my, a bit of my old dad as well. Um, he was you know, a similar kind of character, very passionate, very committed, um, sometimes faulty and wrong-headed. Um, and in some ways, I kind of just really liked the personality of, of Abel Hayward as well. One of the things you do in the book that I think ref, uh, does a great job of capturing his impact upon Manchester is you begin by explaining what Manchester was like at the time of his birth. I was wondering if you could take us back and explain a bit about early 19th century Manchester uh, the uh, world in which in, into which he was born, and 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 sort of how different it is from the Manchester that he left us with uh, when he passed away uh, eighty three years later. Yes, um, Manchester was um, really a sort of the Wild West place of, of um, Britain um, in the early nineteenth century. Um, and it was somewhere that was um, growing exponentially. The, the population quadrupled in the first 50 years of the 19th century. Um, I mean, it had been going ever since, well, the Romans were here originally, and then a medieval market town. Uh, but really, it was in the 19th century, they took off and turned into a great metropolis. Um, and it was this was because of the development, in particular, of the cotton industry in Manchester. Uh, Manchester has a lot of rain. You may have heard about that. <laughs> um, and uh, damp climate is exactly what's needed for the spinning and weaving of, of cotton fabric textiles. Uh, and so Manchester was... Um, at the forefront of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, I mean, some people argue that it was the most important city in the world in the first half of the 19th century because it was the um, the only place really where mass production was going on um, with large factories and large numbers of people all working in one place together. Um, and it, it was very much at the cutting edge of uh, economic change um, and wealth creation uh, at the cutting edge of social change as well because people were pouring in from all around the city and even further away um, to work in, on this, in this new um, uh, environment of the factory. Um, and um, it was also, of course, a place that was horrified a lot of contemporaries by the squalor in which those people lived because as they all poured into the city, jerry-built housing was thrown up for them with no planning, uh, no um, no running water, no sewage facilities, um, and they were all living in cramped, extremely unhealthy conditions. And all the factories were fired by um, steam power, which meant the burning of coal. So the whole place had a sort of pall of smoke over it the whole time. It was very polluted. Um, uh, and so it was an extremely unhealthy place to live. Um, and contemporaries who came from outside regarded it with a sort of horrible fascination. Um, it was a place of wonders where huge amounts of money were being made. Um, 
and where there was all this uh, new development and new technology. It was very exciting for some people. Uh, but for other people, it was a place of horror and degradation um, where, you know, the, the lowest of the low social classes were living entirely without social control from their betters, where they, they'd come from villages where the lord of the manor would dictate how they lived and, and discipline them and so on. And here they were now living cheek by jowl completely freely and, and large numbers of people for example didn't go to church and and that kind of thing large numbers did but large numbers didn't because the, the, the controls were off and so the middle and upper classes were kind of horrified by uh, the way that the, the the poor lived in cities like manchester the life expectancy was absolutely appallingly low in 1842 there was a big survey done by a chap called edwin chadwick a civil servant uh, and he found that the life expectancy in Manchester was on average 17 years because 60% of children died before they reached the age of five in these horrendous conditions. So there was a kind of fascination and admiration, but also a fear of, of a city like Manchester. And it was the only one of its kind for a good few years. And eventually other cities in Britain caught up. But for 50 years or thereabouts, it was the only place that was like that. It's that contrast that I think really stands out in the early chapters, which is you have exactly what you described, this uh, this dynamic, growing uh, uh, industrial center. And yet it's at the same time, you have these governing institutions and, 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 and uh, representational structures, which are positively medieval in terms of their uh, in terms of their origins and in terms of their scope. You, you have, in effect, sort of the... Uh, you know, the, the square peg of industrial, of, of modern Britain being crammed into this round hole of traditional Manchester. And, mm -hmm. and that, and, and how that changes is part of the undercurrent, uh, I, I, I thought, of your book about how so much of that change that takes place over the course of the 19th century, which makes Manchester into uh, a, the, the conception of the modern metropolis, is, you know, takes place during Abel Haywood's lifetime, and he plays such a major role in that. That's right. That's very true. I mean, um, obviously, the first thing that needed to change was the way that the city was governed because it had a, a, a court leet, um, which was a medieval um, form of government, a lord of the manor um, and so on. So all these old uh, institutions, which were just totally un unsuitable and, un and uh, inefficient in the, in the situation that was developing. And in fact, um, in 1835, the national government um, passed a, an act called the Municipal Corporations Act, which allowed places like Manchester to set up a new form of government and municip municipal corporation with an elected mayor and council and older men um, who would, you know, run the city in a different way. And there was a huge battle in the 1830s, the end of the 1830s into the 1840s, um, when Manchester got a charter of incorporation, but the old order wouldn't let go of the reins of power. Uh, and this went on for about four years. And Abel Haywood was involved in that fight. He was very much in favour of the change to municipal uh, corporation uh, rather than the old system. The, the old system was run by a conservative elite, conservative politically with a capital C, um, 
but also with a small c, um, who, for example, wouldn't allow the new corporation when it was elected to use the town hall, uh, the old town hall, uh, wouldn't um, give up the um, rates, the taxes, the local taxes that they were collecting from the townspeople. Uh, and in fact, at one point, the, the uh, corporation couldn't run the police because they didn't have the money. Uh, so it was a major issue. And Abel Hayward was very much on the side of the corporation. He had been involved in the local government. They were The people who actually ran the city um, from the 1790s were called the police commission, but it was an old body. And he was a police commissioner. But as soon as the corporation was set up, he got himself elected onto the new fangled council uh, and was very active in, in defending it and in, in putting forward the case that the old body should be dissolved and hand over. And eventually they did. They had to, they were forced to legally. Uh, and in 1842, the new council really took proper power in, in Manchester. But then, of course, the work went on for the rest of the 19th century, you know, and onwards, even after that, um, in, in sort of setting up the machinery and the infrastructure that was needed for a modern 19th century uh, city. And Abel Hayward was involved in all that, particularly because um, from the mid-1840s, he was the chair, right up to his death, the chair of the uh, Paving and Sewering Committee, which sounds very unglamorous, but is totally <laughs> vital in a um, an industrial city with lots of people, you know, hundreds of thousands of people all living cheek by a jowl. You've got to have sewage and you've got to have paving. And uh, he was very, very instrumental in, in actually um, building um, that, those systems. And later on, of course, in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, in setting up a tram system for Manchester as well uh, to uh, facilitate people moving around and moving from the suburbs into the city rather than having to live right by their places of work. Uh, they could now live in the suburbs and come in once there was a tram uh, system set up. We've been talking about the changes that, that Haywood uh, implemented over the course of his long career in municipal politics. But I, I find that the first change in, in, in many ways was the change that he embodied himself. Who, who was Abel Haywood and how does he go from his beginnings in, in, in the early uh, teens and 20s of the 19th century to uh, this, this to be involved in politics and, and, and to be involved in, 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 in uh, business of Manchester? Mm -hmm. um, he started life, not actually in the centre of Manchester, until he was nine. He lived in a, a village about three miles north of Manchester Township, because until 1853, it wasn't a city, it was a town. Um, and he was born in this little village called Prestwich, um, which was described in 1860 as a pretty village, but nowadays it's just um, a very you know, a suburb of, of Manchester. Um, and his father died when he was young, leaving his mother as a widow with um, four children to uh, bring up, who uh, eventually decided to move to Manchester, like many, many other people um, around the city, into the city to find work for them all because, of course, children worked um, at that time. And so they arrived um, in 1819 when Abel was nine years old and he immediately started work in a warehouse in the centre, uh, uh, run by, owned by a, a gentleman called Mr Worthington. Um, and the warehouse was making small wares and they made things like umbrellas um, as well as actually supplying them but making them there too. So it was a kind of little manufactory. Um, and quite quickly, after five years, Abel was already by that time sort of a, a, like a, 
a young foreman who was in charge of 60 other boys. Um, so he started work at one and six a week, um, which would be a, a wage that he would take home to his mother, uh, but quite quickly was earning more money than that as with special responsibilities. And he remained at, at that place of work until he was in his late teens. Um, meanwhile, also, he did go to, well, he had been going to school in Prestwich to Sunday school because he later in life had a Bible that he'd been given as a prize there. Um, but And he could read and write, which was doing quite well because actually many children in, in Sunday schools, which is the sort of education that was available to poor children, um, only learned to read so that they could read the Bible. They didn't learn to write generally. But increasingly, Sunday schools were introducing writing lessons and he had learned to write. And when he came to Manchester, he started to attend the biggest Sunday school of all, which housed could house two and a half thousand children. It was very large, uh, called Bennett Street Sunday School. It was attached to an Anglican church in a poor area of the city, Ancoats. Um, Abel was living also at this time um, in the very poorest slum in Manchester called Angel Meadow, which was on the fringe of Ancoats. Um, and it was where many of these workers who poured in and had nowhere to live ended up. Um, really, really bad housing. Um, later on in the 1840s, it had a reputation of being a place where the police didn't really go. Uh, and if they did have to go into um, um, Angel Meadow, they went in twos. I mean, it's not well named. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it's, it, it was a place of vice, crime, prostitution, disease, a really, really bad place to grow up. Uh, but that's where Abel spent probably the first um, 10 years of his life, living in what was called a single dwelling, which was a house that was back to back with another house, which would have one uh, one room on up and one room down. No um, back door, so no through air. So the air didn't circulate in these houses. Very, very bad um, atmosphere. Um, and you would be using toilets, privies, as they were called, shared by probably several hundred people at the end of the row of houses. Uh, no running water. There would be a pump in the street, which would be used by everybody. Uh, so, you know, it was an extremely unhealthy uh, environment to live in. Um, so in, in his early years, he was working hard um, at, the, at the warehouse, but also uh, getting education Probably not on a Sunday, actually, probably in the evening classes run during the week, which, again, was something that Sunday schools were beginning to introduce, because we know that he attended the advanced classes for arithmetic, accounting and writing. Uh, and, you know, he was really self-educated. A lot of the teachers themselves were factory workers. They weren't professional teachers. They were people who got a bit of education and wanted to help the young ones get up on the ladder. And so it was, it was a tough upbringing. And the other interesting thing about the year that he came to Manchester was it was a year of a famous event in Manchester's history called the Peterloo Massacre. In 1819, there had been a big meeting um, of ordinary people, probably about 60,000 of them from all around Manchester, from the outlying towns, Bury, Stalybridge, Oldham, as well as people living in Manchester itself, who had poured into the city to an open space called St. Peter's Fields, right in the centre, to hear... Um, a famous orator called Henry Hunt, who was going to speak to them about the right to vote for ordinary men. Um, and they poured in with their wives and families and picnics, and they were all in St. Peter's Fields. Unfortunately, the local authorities had banned this meeting, 
uh, had not given permission for it to take place. And the magistrates decided to send in troops to uh, to uh, disperse the meeting and to arrest Henry Hunt, the orator, and anybody else on the platform with him. Uh, the troops um, were a mixture of um, uh, regulars and also volunteer troops. And it was a vol- one of the volunteer groups, uh, the Cheshire and Lancashire Yeomanry, who went in with sabres to clear the crowd and clear away to Henry Hunt. There's various accounts of what happened, but basically it was an unarmed crowd and they started apparently using the flaps of their sabres, but began then to chop away at people because they couldn't get through the crowd. It was very dense. And a large number of people were very severely injured. The official figures were that 11 were killed on the day and 400 and odd uh, were injured. But it's thought that the death toll was actually much higher than that. The point about this is it entered into radical mythology in Manchester. And 20, 30 years later, when they held the wonderfully named Radical Tea Drinking, which was a meeting where they didn't have alcohol, the radicals met, they would toast in tea the martyrs of Peterloo and vow to avenge them. And Abel Hayward, we don't, he probably didn't attend this event. We don't even know who's in the city at the time, but he knew people who'd been there who had helped to organise the meeting. James Schofield, Samuel Banford, these were radicals who had been there and he knew them very well. Um, so he grew up in this atmosphere of um, radicalism and uh, horror at what had happened and what the government had done to ordinary people on this day. Of course, next year, 2019, is the 200th anniversary of that event. So there's going to be a lot of things happening in Manchester to commemorate it and to learn about it. So I think in Manchester, we're going to know an awful lot more about it after next year. Uh, one of the things you just uh, highlighted that I thought was very interesting was that in in so, in so many uh, tales of uh, or stories of you know the, the uh, of city uh, fathers and, and 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 municipal activists there there's often this uh, there's often this this pattern where they go into business they uh, earn their, their 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 fortune they 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 earn their living they they do well and then the the municipal activism their 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 civic involvement comes later what you describe in your book though is is one of the things that made Abel Haywood's life so fascinating which was that he did both in tandem because you describe how he goes off he builds a, a very successful business as a young man and at the same time he's also involved in politics and, and and not just not just you know involved in political activism, but he's at one point he's he's arrested and imprisoned for it. Yeah. How does he do this? And 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 what does it say about the the depth of his commitment to his political values and and to changing uh, the environment in which he lived? Yeah. Well, absolutely right. I mean, I think the thing he gets into um, uh, the Penny Newsroom movement. Um, by the the uh, late 1820s um, and he the penny newsroom was a place where ordinary people could go ordinary men usually to read newspapers or if they couldn't read and quite a lot of them could because of the sunday school movement um but if they couldn't the the, the newspapers would be read out to the the room to the people who were there um the problem with newspapers for ordinary people was that in the early 19th century, the government did not want ordinary people to read newspapers. They believed it was dangerous to have informed working class people. Um, and therefore, they slapped a huge tax of four pennies onto every newspaper. Otherwise, it was illegal to publish and distribute uh, it. Um, so 
penny newsrooms sprang up so that they ch charged a penny and with the money um, they made a little bit of money for themselves on the side but um, people could go there to read newspapers which were bought in with the money that was pooled from paying to go and they were open till 10 o'clock at night so that people could go after work um, and so Abel Hayward started a penny newsroom while he was still working in Mr Worthington's warehouse um, and um, it did very well uh, and he started we think on Oldham Street not where he ended up in the end, because later on, he branched out from that into being a major newspaper distributor and also a bookseller, a book publisher. And he had a big shop on Oldham Street. But in another part of Oldham Street, he started with his penny newsroom uh, and it, it did very well. So he was because it was doing so well, his name came to the attention of a man in London called Henry Hetherington, who was publishing uh, an illegal newspaper at one penny called The Poor Man's Guardian. And the logo that was on the top of the poor man's guardian was knowledge is power, which is exactly what the government didn't want ordinary people to have, either knowledge or power. So this was an illegal newspaper and Abel Hayward was offered the dealership of it in Manchester and he accepted it and distributed it. It was smuggled up to Manchester and all kinds of uh, consignments of shoes, groceries. It passed through the hands of several people so they couldn't be traced very easily. And it got to Manchester. Well, in 1831-32, the government decided to have a big clampdown on these, um, news, these illegal newspapers. And between 750 and 800 people were arrested and tried for dealing in them. And Abel Hayward was one of those people. So in 1832, he was put on trial and found guilty and put in prison for four months uh, because of this. He wasn't sentenced to hard labour, uh, but he found prison a very, very disturbing and vowed he would never go in again. And he didn't. He was actually fined at least two occasions after he came out um, and he chose to pay the fine rather than go into prison. Uh, on this first occasion, he could have paid a fine, but he said he didn't have the money. But I think also there was this idea of, a bit like the suffragettes later on, going to prison to make a point. Um, so whether he really couldn't pay the fine or he just said that to, because he wanted to make a point, we don't know. But anyway, he went to prison for four months and found it really scary. Uh, it was a horrible experience. There was violence in prison. Um, even on one occasion, we're told an attempt at cannibalism, not to him, but he saw somebody, there were, people were about to eat. They drew lots and they were about to eat one of them. Um, but in fact, the, the government governor dis discovered this and it was dealt with. But you know, that kind of thing was going on. He was horrified at the language of the ordinary prisoners and the, the sort of things they spoke about. You know, he doesn't go into that in detail. And we learn about this from letters that he was writing to his sweetheart's father, um, because it wouldn't be right to write to your sweetheart. I would, you know, it was through her father that he was you know, doing it in the proper way. Um, and so he found prison really horrifying and came out. But his family kept his little business going. And when he came out, he carried on working in the business and building it up. And by 1851, he was uh, controlled 10% of the newspaper trade outside London and 10% of all the cheap literature, the penny dreadfuls, the lurid stories that um, ordinary people like to read that were produced in great masses by Lloyds of London, the publisher Lloyds of London. And he also started publishing on his own account. And uh, he particularly specialised in um, the works of Mrs Linnaeus Banks, a famous book called The Manchester Man was published by him. He also published um, lots of works in Lancashire dialect, 
um, and began to do very well. And then he was a, he was a real entrepreneur. He branched out into paper making and wallpaper making, which became huge. And he had branches uh, all over the world, actually. There was one in New York. Um, and uh, began to exhibit at great exhibitions and winning medals and, and so on for the wallpaper. Uh, he also tried some, like any entrepreneur, businesses that failed. He uh, tried to start his own newspaper on two occasions called The Manchester Spectator, but it failed after a couple of years each time. Um, and he, he also went into weaving at one point, but that doesn't seem to have got him anywhere very much. Uh, and then later on, when he became more well-known and he actually had been mayor in Manchester, he... Um, he was, uh, went out into being a director of uh, insurance companies and banks. So he, he really did try his hand at lots of things, uh, starting up several companies uh, and actually one cooperative company. He was very keen on the idea of cooperation. And he started one cooperative company, which was a plate um, and bar iron company. Um, so he, he was trying all kinds of things. But also alongside this, as you quite rightly say, he was getting involved in, in more and more in politics. And one of the things he actually began to sell, first of all, apart from the poor man's guardian, was a, a chartist newspaper. Now, chartists were it was a working class movement of people who wanted a vote for working class men, for everybody, really. Um, but particularly focusing on men, because to focus on women as well would have been a step too far, perhaps, in the early days because of contemporary attitudes towards women. Um, and so he was a chartist, a leading chartist in Manchester, and Manchester was a leading place for chartism in the country. And one of the things that the chartist leaders said was it would be a good idea to get a foothold in local government. And so he got himself elected onto the Manchester Council uh, and, as I've mentioned before, became a, a quite an important member of the, of the council itself. Um, and... You couldn't be a member of the council if you didn't have the wherewithal. So the, making money in business allowed him to do the things he wanted to do in politics. I don't think he was a materialistic man at all. I think he used his wealth to get him where he wanted to be in terms of the power to make a difference. I think that's what he was really interested in. And so getting into the council was financed by his business. And in fact, later in life, he said he'd lost a lot of money in business because of his work for the council and in other charitable works and that kind of thing. I, I was thinking of a, a pass of a quote that you have later in the book from his grandson about the perception mm -hmm. in his family that in, in his later years, when he was still uh, officially in charge of the business, that uh, he was not devoting the attention he needed to to it because he was so much more invested in interest in his uh, municipal and political activities. Yeah, exactly right. And, uh, you know, I think also he probably found it hard to delegate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you do get the impression, you know, the business was very much his baby. And I think he found it hard to let go. He carried on working in, in the shop uh, in Oldham Street, you know, right to the end of his life. He did take his older son, also called Abel, into partnership. Uh, and, um, you know, when he died in his will, he, he gave him the option of keeping the business going and buying out his shares, which which younger Abel did do. Uh, but you do get the impression that actually he was trying to keep too many balls in the air at one time. And he really should have delegated more of the business earlier on. And in fact, George Basil, who you're talking about there, his grandson, does say that his father, the young Abel, had to work really hard to get the business back when, when his father died because it was struggling, uh, in George Basil's opinion. Um, it's interesting, he had a, a brother called John who was older than him who also had 
a stationary business uh, that, and he went into similar kind of um, branches. He, he kept a lot of school books and also sold school equipment and school furniture. And he was in Manchester too. And by the end of the 19th century, John Haywood's business was one of the biggest outside London, but Abel's was in the decline. But John Haywood didn't go into local politics. He didn't. He did had a small role as a poor law guardian. But apart from that, he focused on his business. And I think that shows, you know, the difference between them. That Abel's business suffered because of all the other things he was doing. I was wondering if you could uh, take us to, uh, you know, uh, to where the offices that he was serving in during this period. We're, we're talking now about the uh, early Victorian, high Victorian period, 1840s, 1850s, when he's mm. getting much more involved in municipal politics. And you describe these these offices in which he's serving. How is he, uh, you know, on what sort of platform is is he campaigning? And what sort of changes is, is he trying to push through in these various positions that he's been, uh, that he's been selected for? Yeah, I think, I mean, the main thing, one of the things is that a lot of the information that I got is from the local newspapers um, because um, the council records, are there are quite a lot of them, but they don't really tell you what what I needed to know, which was what did individual people say in the deliberations, the minutes, for example, of all the meetings, um, quite a lot of them are there, but they only tell you what they decided to do in the end. So the newspapers were great for telling you what the discussion was. And from that, I get the overriding sense that there were two groups of people whose welfare he was particularly interested in. And one of them was expedient and the other one was his passion. The expedient group are the ratepayers who elected him. And he had to get himself elected every three years back onto the council until in 1853, he got elected by the councillors to be an alderman, which was one of a select group of senior councillors who weren't elected by the, the, the wider um, public, uh, but were elected by the council themselves. Um, and, and, that, and he had to be re-elected as that as well. So he always had to keep that in mind, too. So he had to keep in mind that if he wanted to do anything, he had to keep his position on the council. And so it was treading a fine line between um, spending money, which the ratepayers paid rates for um, uh, and, and not ex- spending money excessively and being able to justify spending money um, and yet also keeping the rates low to keep the ratepayers happy. And, you know, there, there were times when that got a little bit hairy for him. Um, but then the other people who he was passionate about really were the poor. And right through his life, having started life as a very poor boy in the poorest area of Manchester, he was very conscious of the needs of the poor and went to talk to them. Um, That was the thing. He was very hands-on. So there was one, for example, one case where he, in the council, challenged the the committee that dealt with uh, the the pavements and marketing and who could have market stalls on pavements and that kind of thing, and accused them of being, um, you know, uh, unfair and um, biased in their the way that they treated people who were selling things on the pavements to keep body and soul together, you know, not because they were rich people, but because they were poor. Um, He was also keen on defending the interests of the poor in terms of their leisure time. So, again, in the 1850s, there was a big argument about whether bands should be allowed to play in the public parks that he helped to um, campaign for in the 1840s. Uh, and there were several public parts in Manchester by the 1850s. Um, and there was a big Sabbatarian movement that was very much against any kind of recreational 
uh, entertainment in the parks on Sundays, which of course was the only day that working people had off work. Um, and he fought very hard and got a big petition of the working classes together to uh, to agitate uh, for uh, the bans to be allowed to continue. And in spite of the fact that he had a bigger petition than the Sabbatarians had raised, I think by about 4,000 signatures, uh, the Sabbatarians won that battle and the, ba the parks, uh, the, the bans in the parks were banned, were not allowed anymore. Um, so, you know, he was always, always thinking about the needs of the poor and uh, and so on. He was he became a poor law guardian at one point, which was the people that ran the workhouses. Um, he didn't stay in that office for very long because he found it was too difficult to get anything through. And I think probably it was dividing up his time too much as well. And he did say that it was the demands of the time that made him not stand for election again after a few years. But he was, he didn't really get very much achieved there. And I think the vested interests were actually a bit strong for him on his own. Whereas in the council, he did have allies. There was a small group of them. Um, I mentioned James Schofield, who had been at Peterloo. He was on the council with him and he was a radical uh, nonconformist minister from Ancoats. Uh, so he had allies on the council. He was a bit on his own as a lone voice and as, as a poor law guardian. So he sort of gave up on that one you know, and decided that discretion was the better part of valour and he <laughs> concentrated his efforts somewhere that might be more effective. Um, when the library, first public library, was set up in Manchester in 1852, he sat on the committee, um, which um, was the book committee. Uh, but again, it was something that he'd supported. When the first art gallery was set up in Manchester in the 1880s, he again had been instrumental in pushing for that. So he was interested in the cultural life and the opportunities. And whenever there was an occasion like a, a royal occasion, like a royal wedding, um, he... Uh, um, agitated again that there should be these places should all be thrown open to the public um, that the public gardens and parks should all be open to the public even when they were normally paying uh, concerns like the Bellevue Gardens or the Pomona Gardens when there was a big event in the city celebrating something uh, it was always Abel Hayward who was saying let's open them up to the ordinary people let's let the, the poor in uh, to enjoy them um, so you know he, he always always had that constituency very much in mind even though those people were were not electors they couldn't vote because they didn't have the uh, property qualifications to vote um, but they were the people he really cared about and I think they knew that and right to the end of his life they recognized him as one of their own even though he became relatively quite wealthy uh, he was always thought of as being on their side. I thought a very interesting barometer of his standing in the uh, in the town council, both of, both as a councilman and alderman, was, was embodied in his uh, efforts to get elected uh, Lord Mayor. I was wondering if you could explain a bit what made the, that position so significant, and and how it was that, that he was eventually able to uh, win his first term as Lord, Lord Mayor in the early eighteen sixties. Yeah, I think he was quite ambitious. I think, you know, although I don't think he was materialistic, I do think he liked the idea of being in a position of power. And although the Lord Mayor didn't, uh, was not supposed to be um, partial in council meetings, and he must have found that quite difficult, <laughs> um, not actually expressing an opinion, because be before and after, he was on his feet a lot saying what he thought. Um, but he did manage to keep a sort of um, neutral stance when he was mayor. But it did give, give him a casting vote, for example, and he did use that very 
significantly on one occasion when there was an argument in his during his first mayoralty in 1863, um, he was actually able to use his casting vote as mayor to push through um, a decision to make Albert Square um, a fine new square, which it had been a sort of dumping yard for the council for the the fire engines and the paving stones and that kind of thing. That was it was his casting vote that meant that Albert Square became the site of the statue of Prince Albert, which is a very significant monument in Manchester, and the site where the new town hall eventually was built. Um, so it, you know it did give him particular power in those directions. The first mayoralty, I think he. Um, uh, was I think probably I mean he was unanimously elected which seems a bit strange um, in that he did have his enemies on the council because he was a radical and there were some conservatives on the council who really didn't like his views and he sometimes could be very forthright and even mild well I suppose nowadays is mild but probably then more offensive than we would think it now to other people you know implying things like that they were um, turncoats and you know had not stuck to their principles and things like that so he did have enemies but he was elected unanimously and I think the reason was that they were in the middle of the cotton famine um, and this was um, a, a period of huge unemployment in the whole Manchester district because, of course, Manchester itself was actually a cent more a place of warehouses by this time than, than cotton manufactories. Uh, the factories tended to be in the outlying towns, but the whole Lancashire cotton industry was in a terrible slump, um, occasioned by the civil war in the United States, because most of the cotton from that was manufactured came from the southern United States. Uh, and the dislocation caused by the civil war had meant that the imports ceased uh, and so the 1860s was a very bad time in Manchester. Um, and uh, in 1862, things were getting really bad. Uh, the, the mayor, who was uh, actually in charge in 1861 to 2, the mayors were elected in November of the previous year, um, was uh, struggling to actually raise money to, um, you know, to finance soup kitchens and help for the unemployed. So Abel Hayward was chosen as mayor, I think, because there were rumblings that there was going to be terrible trouble in Manchester. Um, there already were meetings being held in, in the favourite meeting place of the working classes, which is in the middle of Ancoats, a square called Stevenson Square, where open air meetings were always held when there was trouble. Uh, and um, Abel Hayward was known to be a friend of the people. And I think choosing him as mayor might have been as much... Uh, because they believed that the, the council believed that he would be able to control the situation because he would be seen to be on the side of the, the poor. Also, he did galvanise everything once he became mayor. He, the very day he was uh, appointed, uh, elected, he um, immediately uh, held a meeting of the, the relief committee and started to reorganise the collections and uh, and how the relief was going to be uh, amassed and distributed. Uh, so he, he really, you know, was very dynamic and he really cared about it. And in fact, you know, when he talked about this period, this was what he always talked about, his first mayoralty. For him, the most important thing was um, relieving the, the, the cotton, um, the people who were suffering in, in the cotton famine. Um, and... It, of course, the famine went on, the civil war went on um, to well after he was mayor, but he continued to work 
for uh, the relief effort right through. Um, so I think that that you know was was a very important um, part of his his activities as as mayor at that time. And I think you know he was probably in in part delighted to be able to to do so much as mayor because uh, he wouldn't have had that role. He was active in the relief before, but as mayor, he could really make a difference and really start to move things along. And that's what he did. So I think, you know, uh, he, he did like having the power, but I think he, he wanted to use it for the particular ends that, that he had. I mean, he's also very devoted to royalty. And in the same period when he was mayor the first time, there was a royal wedding of uh, the future Edward VII with Alexandra of Denmark. And there were huge celebrations in Manchester in the middle of this huge slump uh, to celebrate that. The gardens were all thrown open for free, as I've mentioned earlier. And also there was this massive uh, uh, campaign to gas illuminate all the major buildings and private homes. In fact, his own house was illuminated as well with a, a star of Brunswick and AA for Albert. Um, that's Edward's um unofficial name and um, and alexandra uh, and the town hall the old town hall was illuminated the the um, the library was illuminated with gas illuminations which is actually quite scary when you think that they were using gas uh, lighting for all this uh, but spectacular and in fact the fire brigade that was on standby was never actually called out they they planned it very carefully there were large crowds expected and the whole thing was planned very well and most of the city enjoyed the celebration and you could argue as some people did that this was a waste of money in the middle of all this hardship but i think it showed i think people were very very patriotic very royalist at that time and he was certainly very much you know keen on royalty um and i think it allowed them to sort of have a celebration in the middle of all the doom and gloom uh, but there were there were uh, rumblings as well um about this there was actually a, a demonstration in stevenson square that was meant to be a, a sort of parade to honour the royal couple and loaves were going to be distributed. The, the, the workers were supposed to assemble and march from the square to a big field outside the city called Curzel Moor and then loaves were going to be distributed from uh, grain, um, had, sorry, flour that had been sent from New York to relieve the, the suffering of the cotton workers. Um, so there was going to be this big march for a few miles out to the outskirts of the city and then the loaves would be given out. But actually the workers were very angry and said that they shouldn't be making a show because, you know, they were poor and they started to take the loaves in the square. And then there was a some sort of fight and the loaves were thrown around. Uh, one of them hit the uh, chaplain of the ship that had brought the, the flower on the head, his name was Mr. Dennison. Um, I don't think he was seriously injured. But, um, you know, there's this, this big demonstration and people were very angry. So... There is an undercurrent, but somehow it was kept in control and most people enjoyed the celebrations. So I think perhaps it wouldn't have all gone off in that way if it hadn't been that Abel Haywood was the mayor and was sort of seen to be doing something effective. Oh, not as effective as he would have liked, but, but relatively effectively. Um, and so that first mayoralty passed off quite successfully. And eventually, of course, the cotton famine did subside. Uh, the war ended. Uh, some cotton was got in from other places. Some workers emigrated to other parts of the British Empire. Um, there were work schemes set up, which didn't employ as many people as hope, but were reasonably um, successful. And uh, so uh, eventually, at, at the end of the Civil War, um, cotton industry was able to resume properly. And the whole episode passed off really relatively peacefully. Um, and it may well be that it was helped by the fact that Abel Haywood was mayor for that period, um, um, for that year. 
you describe a, a very uh, successful political career, one which uh, reflects the esteem in which he was held by his peers, by uh, the people. And yet there is this one failure in his career that uh, that you uh, talk about, and that is his failure to get elected to parliament. And, and it's, it, it especially stands out given how you describe how ambitious he is and, and, and how he you know, desires to do uh, so much, and he does so much in Manchester. And yet when it comes to going to the next level to become a national figure, he his, his attempts don't succeed. Why is that? Yeah, um, it's interesting that um, he he stood twice for Parliament on both occasions at a time when most working class people, men, didn't have a vote. So he had to win over the middle class. And in 1859, when he stood for the first time, he didn't give himself an awful lot of time to do that because he decided fairly late on that he would stand. Um and he did campaign very hard. I mean, two meetings a day in various parts of Manchester, the wards, the each area of Manchester. Um, he, he went to uh, many, um, both middle class and working class meetings and spoke to people and ta- tailored quite cleverly his speeches to his audience, um, you know, stressing the things that would appeal particularly to the working class and working class districts, but focusing more on things that were of concern to the middle classes uh, in the middle class areas. And he was promised um, quite a lot of support. He did miss being elected on the first occasion in 1859 uh, by several thousand votes, which was quite a a large proportion. Um, And it was estimated that most of the working class voters, the few that there were, did vote for him. But he didn't really win over the middle classes. And he took heart from this. He thought he came third and if he'd been second, there were two MPs for Manchester at that time. If he'd come second, he would have been elected. And if he had, that would have been in all the big history books because he would have been the very first man of working class origins to be elected to Parliament. Uh, but he didn't. Uh, and he himself uh, said at the time, well, never mind. I, you know, I didn't give myself very long and, um, you know, I, I'll have another go. So in 1865, he tried again. Uh, and on this occasion came a miserable fourth, the last in the in the poll. Um, and he himself said, and there is some evidence to support this, because even conservatives who were favourable to him, and he did get quite a lot of support from conservatives who said that they thought he was an honourable man and they didn't agree with everything he said, but they thought he might make a better job of it than some of the other um, candidates. And some of them were moderate liberals. And he was actually splitting the liberal vote on both these occasions. I should mention that. So the moderate liberals were not very happy. Um, but um, it, he, he the, even the Conservatives were saying things like, well, you know, if he'd had a big mill, if he'd been an upper middle class, uh, if he'd been richer, um, if he hadn't been working class, he might have got in. And he himself decided that this was the reason he didn't get in, that he was too working class and too radical. And I think probably that goes a large way to account for his failure. He did on both occasions say he was going as to agitate for as much as he could get or as close as he could get to universal suffrage. He did go as the representative for universal suffrage for men. But later on in his life, he was a, a women's suffrage campaigner as well. So uh, I think at this stage, he was, by implication, saying he was in favour of a vote for all men. Um, but 
Um, I, he, there is some evidence that he supported the idea of a vote for women, but perhaps wouldn't make too much of that at this point because it would alienate so many. Um, but he didn't get elected, and, and uh, then the, he could have stood again in 1867 and 1868 when there were two further elections in Manchester. But unfortunately, tragically, his wife died and he never stood again for Parliament. But in 1867, uh, quite a lot of men, in working class men in the towns were given the vote and he might have stood a lot more chance of being elected. But unfortunately, private circumstances conspired to prevent him from standing again. Um, so it's it's um, obviously an opportunity that was missed. Um, he did run his elections extremely morally uh, in that he wouldn't spend money to persuade people to vote for him. One of the most popular ways of doing that was to provide transport to the um, polling stations for the people he thought would vote for him. Uh, all the other candidates did that. They provided carriages to take people to the polling stations. And although it was illegal to bribe people, it was very easy to bribe or intimidate because voting at that time was open. There was no secret ballot. You stood and you said in a big, loud voice who you were voting for. So it was very much open to corruption. Uh, and that didn't change till, well, really 1883 when a cap was put on election spending. Uh, the secret ballot was introduced in 1872. Um, but um, he didn't pay, and he'd said quite clearly beforehand that he would not pay for any kind of treating or carriages or anything like that. And indeed, when you look at his election expenses, they were far smaller. He spent um, about £700 on his election expenses. The next candidate in terms of costs, was spending over £2,000. So he did run his campaigns very cheaply and didn't try to bribe people in any way, um, which may have counted against him again. It's hard to tell. Oh, and the other thing I should mention is in 1865, there was a very dirty trick um, that one of the candidates announced during the afternoon of polling that Abel Haywood had stood down and conceded defeat. Uh, and he, this was about two o'clock in the afternoon. And a lot of people, presumably then, believing that he stood down, might well have voted for other people. And um, he hadn't stood down at all. This was a complete lie. Um, and, uh, you know, they went around the streets telling everybody this. So it could well be that that really damaged his interests as well, that people, you know, thought, well, if he stood down, I'll vote for somebody else. Uh, and that may well have damaged his, his chances too. So... Lots of things conspired against him, and it may well have been a combination of those things, I think, that caused his failure. And yet, because he was unable to get elected to Parliament, he was still very much involved in municipal politics. It's, it's difficult to imagine that uh, you would have seen as much success in terms of pushing through the Manchester Town Hall as it became had he gone to London and, and sat in Parliament there. Absolutely. I think that's right. I think he focused his in once, you know, 1865 and then he didn't stand again in 1867. By 1868, the new town hall project was getting underway and he was the chair of the building committee. He would never have been able to do all that if he had gone to London and got involved in, in Parliament. He had said in 1865 that he would give up his business um, in uh, Oldham Street to, to be an MP. So, yeah, he would definitely not have done the things he did in Manchester. So I think he decided perhaps, well, you know, maybe I'll I'll concentrate on where I know I can be successful. And, you know, I, I don't have any evidence for that particularly, but 
obviously his actions imply that he decided that his course was going to be local rather than national. Yes. So how, it, what was his level of involvement in the construction of Manchester Town Hall? Was it that just hit the his role in the genesis of it? Did he, uh, you know, man? Did he, you know, observe it very carefully and intervene at various points? To what degree does he get that credit for having built the town hall? Yeah, well, I think most people in Manchester, if you say the town hall, anybody who knows anything about its building will take Alfred Waterhouse, who was the architect. Um, but. And, and indeed, Waterhouse designed the, the town hall. But Abel Haywood, it, it was something that he had been talking about and thinking about since the early, at least the early 1850s. Uh, and it had been acknowledged quite widely in the council that something new was needed, that the old town hall on King Street was inadequate for its purpose, that the council chamber was unhealthy. They complained about getting colds in because they were sitting in there in the damp and so on. Um and that they just needed something that reflected the the glory of Manchester as it had become this this city that they now had, rather than um, the building that had been running the township of Manchester. Um, and he pushed it through, um, and it was a big battle in the late 1850s. It took up a huge amount of council time about where the new post office should go. Now, post office is a, a really important building in, in an industrial city, but Abel Haywood fought tooth and nail in the council to keep it away from the town yard, the place where Albert Square was eventually put and the, and the town hall was eventually built. And it seems to me that he probably had the idea, and in fact he did say, that's a better place for a really important civic building. Um, uh, he didn't say town hall, but, you know, it seems to me that he perhaps had this at the back of his mind for a long time. It was going to be there. And indeed, the post office was built elsewhere and it was the site of the town hall. Once the building committee was set up, he was in charge of overseeing the choice of architect. It was done by competition. Um, he was in charge of uh, getting in the tenders for the foundations and the actual construction. He said later on in life that he'd visited the site every day except Sundays. So he'd been really hands-on. When there was a strike of the Masons, a big strike, which le led to a lot of the other workers being laid off, he managed the strike. Not not very well from the point of view of the workers. He was seen to be very unsympathetic, which is not like him, really. Um, but I think probably he was just you know, this was his baby and he was very worried about the construction coming to a halt. And they got in black lead labour, which enabled it to continue, but that put him on the wrong side of the, the union. Um, it, it all sorted itself out in the end. But, um, yeah, it was he who was dealing with that. He was also dealing with uh, the later on with the internal works, with the clock, with the bells, how many bells there should be in the tower. And at every stage, he was really hands-on. It was him who was doing the meetings. He was dealing with, arguing with the people in the council who didn't like this, didn't like that. Um, and, um, yeah, and making a lot of decisions about the way the whole project was going to go. So he was extremely important. And I think in recognition of that, in 1875, when he was 65 years old, he climbed up the scaffolding on the outside of the main tower above the grand entrance and laid the final stone, uh, you know, which was quite a remarkable feat uh, to, to do that. And 
Um, you know, this, he was doing this because he was honoured with that job because he had overseen the building of the, uh, the whole thing anyway. Uh, earlier on, I should perhaps mention, when they laid a foundation stone, um, it was his name along with that of the architect and the town clerk uh, that was put on the uh, carved on into the stone. So, you know, it, throughout his role was recognised as being very important. And when the town hall was going to be opened, it was decided it would be in 1877, the council chose him to be mayor because whoever was mayor when it was opened was expected to get a knighthood. And they thought that he deserved that honour. So he was chosen to be mayor for the opening and it was fully expected that the Queen, Queen Victoria, would come and open the town hall and make him a knight. Um, And so, you know, it was... His recognised to be his project right the way through. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? What I'm working on now, um, I'm working on Hunter the Mancunian. I seem to have got it's something of a crusade to uh, um, restore the reputation of uh, eminent Mancunians who have been forgotten about um, in the 20th, 20th and 21st centuries. So the, this is another Victorian, but it's a woman this time, because I thought having looked at, a, uh, at the career of a man, I should go into the career of a, a woman. So um, I'm researching and writing the biography of a woman called Lydia Becker, who uh, was um, actually born to the north of Manchester, but considered herself a thorough Manchester woman. And she was really effectively the leading women's suffrage campaigner from 1870 to 1890 when she died. Um, And she worked from Manchester, but also in London because she became the the, uh, parliamentary lobbyist for the suffragists in London. She worked alongside um, the later leader of the suffragists, who was Millicent Fawcett, who has a statue in London. Um, But Lydia Becker was overshadowed by another great Mancunian, Emmeline Pankhurst, leader of the suffragettes. And when the suffragettes became very prominent, they kind of um, played down the role of the earlier suffragists, uh, and um, particularly Sylvia Pankhurst, who kind of very dismissively said that Lydia Becker was a very limited campaigner and, you know, made out that really they'd achieved nothing. Whereas, in fact, I think looking at the career of Lydia Becker and her uh, contemporaries in the suffragist movement, they actually achieved a huge amount. And and there was a lot being achieved for women in the late 19th century, uh, which the suffragettes didn't really give credit for. And if it hadn't been for these earlier foundations that were laid by the earlier suffragists, the suffragettes wouldn't have been able to achieve what they achieved. And um, and not to take anything from the suffragettes, they were, you know, they're tremendous uh, um, achievements. But they were actually present, obviously, still when women did get partially get the vote in 1918 and then fully in 1928. Um, And so they kind of got the credit. But I think these earlier women actually deserve a lot more attention. And so I'm 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 rectifying that. And in fact, Lydia Becker is the only uh, important women's suffragist who doesn't have her own biography now. So I'm hoping to put that right um, and hoping that this will come out in about 2020. Well, it sounds like a fantastic project. I hope so. (laughs) Uh, Joanna Williams, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. I'm delighted to speak to you, and uh, thank you very much for having me on your show.